I love the uh, last line of that song, he's the one who never leaves the one behind. Aren't you glad for that? If you're glad for that, let's put our hands together. That was so good. That was so good. Um, A couple of things before we uh, get started. One, next week is the conclusion of this series, and I would love for all of you to try to be here. I don't want you to hear about it second-handed. Next week, it's going to be a bit troubling, a bit challenging, but more than that, I think it's going to be helpful, and I think it's going to be encouraging. And if you're here next week, I know that you'll leave being glad that you were. So make sure you're here next weekend as we close out this series. And then two weeks from today, on the weekend of May 19th, Uh, I want everybody to be here. London, Somerset, Williamsburg. I need everybody to be here for what we're calling Give Us Kentucky Weekend. And I've got something really, really important that I want to talk to our church about. So if you call the Creek Church your church, or you're thinking about making the Creek Church your church, or if you watch online because the Creek Church is your church, I would love for you to be right here in a seat at one of our campuses next week because we got to talk about something that's really important and really exciting. So I look forward to seeing you two weeks uh, from this weekend on Give Us Kentucky Weekend, all right? If you'll do your best to be here, say I will. All right, so don't lie to me, all right? You said it in church. Now, today uh, we're in the second week of a series that we're calling God Lovers and People Haters and Other Things That Don't Go Together. And last week we talked about lawfulness and lovelessness because those are two things that just don't go together when you follow Jesus. If you weren't here last week and you're a guest of ours, we talked about that when Jesus went public, that he sided with and stood for a group of people that had no one siding with them or standing up for them. And that particular group in the first century were known as sinners. And this particular group known as the sinners, they were led to believe that as far as God was concerned, they were unclean, they were unholy, they were unwanted, and they were unloved. And so Jesus shows up and he decides, I'm going to be your friend. I'm going to be your friend because you have no friend. I'm going to side with you because no one's siding with you. And I'm going to stand up for you because no one is standing up for you. And when Jesus became a friend to sinners, he became the enemy of the religious establishment. And so I hope that you will begin to read through the pages of the Gospels with that particular lens. Because sometimes it's hard to imagine how in the world could anybody want to kill Jesus. Well, that's how a group of people decided that they wanted to kill Jesus is because they decided that because he was a friend to sinners, he must be their enemy. And so all throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we find Jesus a friend to the unrighteous and he's an enemy to those who were considered righteous. And that's the storyline of Jesus's life. That's the narrative, which will ultimately culminate with his death. Now think about it because this is where it pertains to all of us. Jesus became an enemy of those who were considered the most moral because he was a friend to those who were considered the least moral. Jesus was ultimately crucified because he forged a relationship with people on the margins, people who had been excluded, forgotten, left behind. And Jesus did so indiscriminately and unconditionally. And so the storyline of the gospels is this, Jesus was hated and rejected by the religious of his day because he loved and accepted the irreligious of his day. Now, there's other layers to that onion and it's complicated, but that is such a big part of the storyline of why we see animosity between Jesus and religious leaders that believe much of the same things that Jesus believed, that shared much of the same values that Jesus had. And so the religious establishment looked at Jesus and because he was a friend to those in the margin, they said, we just don't understand it. 
And then they drew conclusions from Jesus and they actually ended up misunderstanding Jesus entirely. They said, this man doesn't condemn the people that he hangs out with, so he must condone them because isn't that the only two options? You either condemn or you condone. There, there doesn't seem to be another way. And then they misrepresented him. And the people who were supposedly on the side of God called Jesus, the son of God, a false teacher, a false prophet, an enemy of the kingdom. They called him demon possessed and they saw him as a threat. Now, this is where all of us should just, should just be real sensitive to the fact that once we find ourselves following Jesus and we're part of the local church and we are, whether we like it or not, we are part of organized religion. It never, it never makes sense to me when people say, I don't like organized religion. Well, there's only thing, one thing worse than organized religion disorganized religion and so you know it's like hey we're part of the local church and this is by god's design and organized religion sometimes gets a bad rap but once you're in it once you're in the faith once you're following jesus it's so easy to begin to put things in front of jesus and when you put things in front of jesus you actually can end up on the wrong side of god in the name of god so they misunderstood him they misrepresented him and in the end they ended up on the wrong side of god in the name of god by killing the Son of God, that's how far religion can take us. That's how devastating religion can be for you and how devastating religion can be for me and that's how devastating religion can become in the local church if we allow it. So the question that caused Jesus and the establishment to part ways was this, what's most important to God? And Jesus showed up with a disturbing answer. People, the religious establishment said, no, we think it's the law of God. We think it's theology. We think, you know, it's all this stuff. We think it's truth. We think, we think all of these things are the most important to God. And Jesus said, no, people are most important to God. Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself because the way that you prove that you love God is by demonstrating that you love your neighbor, all your neighbors, and there's no exclusions to that. And so Jesus taught that the greatest law of God is to love people. And consequently, he taught it is always unlawful to be unloving. He said, there's no exceptions to this. There's no buts. There's no what ifs. And no longer could people believe that they were good with God and mistreat people at the same time. That's what religion allows us to do, to believe we're okay with God and either mistreat people or feel in a way that's not honoring to God about people. And so no longer could the religious, establish, uh, religious establishment say, hey, we're okay with God, but we're going to mistreat people in the name of God using the laws of God. No longer could they do that because Jesus pulled back the curtain and said, this is not the way it's supposed to be. No longer could they read the Old Testament and make up their own interpretations to suit their own desires. And, and this is why Jesus was so controversial. He took the Old Testament from them. And this is, this is a big deal. Jesus was a Bible guy. Jesus believed in the infallibility and the, <clears throat> the inspiration of the Old Testament. But what Jesus did not agree with was the religious establishment's interpretation of that inspired infallible text. And so Jesus said, hey, if you're gonna read the Old Testament, if you're gonna read the Pentateuch, the Torah, if you're gonna read the prophets, the major and the minor prophets, listen, I'm gonna tell you that you've been misinterpreting it. You've been misapplying it. And so Jesus said, if you interpret the law and the prophets, with any other application other than love God and love your neighbors yourself, Jesus said, you have believed it wrong, you have read it wrong, you have interpreted it wrong. And the point was this, when you mis misinterpret scripture, which they were, when you misinterpret scripture, you end up misrepresenting God, and they were, and you end up mistreating people, and they were. 
This happens every single time. When you misinterpret scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, this is why the scriptures are so important. Here at the Creek Church, we believe that the Bible, we believe that it is the word of God. We believe it's inspired. We believe it's infallible. We believe that the words of God, we believe that's the authority that gives us insight on how we're supposed to live out our faith. But at the same time, we understand that our interpretations are not infallible of the infallible text. So when you or when I or when we or when anybody misinterprets scripture, we end up misrepresenting God and we end up mistreating people. That's what always happens. When you read the Bible wrong, you end up treating people wrong eventually. It happens every single time. Now, many of us grew up in church. Matter of fact, I would just like to see this at all of our campuses, Williamsburg, Somerset, here in London. How many of you uh, would consider yourself to be a person who grew up in church? Let me just, just, just see your hands, see, okay. So uh, many of us, many of us, and uh, many of us are still in therapy because of it. And uh, so, some of you, you know, you're, you're probably glad you didn't, but I, I do. I'm glad I grew up in the local church. Uh, there's, there's a lot of things I feel like I've had to shake off. And, but I'm telling you, I, I just can't separate who I am today from where I came from and what I was exposed to. And, and you know, and so I, I, I say this, you know, knowing that I love where I came from, but for those of us who grew up in church, some of us grew up in churches that gave us the idea somewhere along the way that God hates people. And just not people, but certain people. And usually it's a small group of people. It's, it's not typically normally a large group of people, but we would listen to sermons and, and if we were paying attention, and many of us weren't, so we weren't thinking about what they were saying. But if, if we stopped long enough to think about what they were saying, it was almost as if it seemed like God hated certain people and usually a small group of people. And that small group of people, it could be a different group of people depending on what type of church you were in depending on what type of denomination you were in, what type of religious tribe you were in, or what type, or what part of the country that you were in. So, you know, the people that God seemingly hated or that we thought God hated because of the way people talked about them at church, it, it could vary from place to place to place to place. And so some of us, we sit there and we listen to sermons where people were yelling and screaming and the preacher seemed angry and the Christians were cheering them on and they seemed angry. And, and it almost seemed like a mob just ready to attack someone because it was almost as if God God hates some people and the people of God are excited that God hates some people and God can't wait to judge them and throw them into hell and consequently the people of God can't wait for God to judge them and throw them into hell and so it's like a big pep rally and it was like I hope this hurries up and happens I hope I get to see it and of course it was never anybody at the church it was typically the people who weren't at the church because, you know, preachers like to keep their job. And the best way to keep your job, dirty little secret, is to preach about the people who aren't here. That's, that's what's happened in a lot of our local churches. So we started thinking about, okay, well, you know, then there's big sin, there's little sin. And, and then there's some sin God really cares about and some other sins God doesn't care about as much. And again, I say the list changed from place to place. Maybe you grew up in a church where it was music. Music was bad. Instruments were bad. You know, so there couldn't be any instruments in church because some way the music was, you know, the, the instrumentation, it was just bad. For some of you, it's dancing, right? Uh, you know, dancing leg, praying knee doesn't grow on the same body, right? You, you, can't, you can't dance, you know, dancing always leads to sex. Everybody knows that. If you dance, you end up having sex. So don't dance uh, because if you do, it's what happens. So just don't do that. And for some of them, you know, maybe it was your generation, it's Pokemon. No, stay away from evil Pokemon or Harry Potter or Disney, you know, the boycott. Hey, we can't go to Disney. If you go to Disney, oh my God, you're going to hell with them. And don't do that. And for some churches, it was the contemporary church that was enemy for the contemporary church for some of them it was the traditional church that was the enemy we always had enemies 
And it seemed to be, you know, there was always a them and there was always a they that we were talking about. And they were the problem. And if they could be fixed or we could rid ourselves of them, then the whole thing is just going to be better for all of us. Let me tell you what happened with that. The longer we heard those sermons and the longer we got exposed to that message, it robbed humanity from the they or them that the church was so busy talking about. And after a while, we talked about that particular group of sinners or that particular group of people that were causing all the problems so much. It didn't even seem like they were human anymore, did it? We didn't even think of them with, as, you know, as if they had names or if they were somebody's son or somebody's daughter or brother or sister. We didn't even think about the fact that, hey, maybe there's a reason or, or maybe once upon a time, you know, they've got a story, they've got a history and there's some explanation to why they act and why they behave and why they've made the choices that they've made. And, and all of a sudden we just stopped thinking about them in terms of being human. Our sermons, our conversation, our dialogue, our rhetoric, it robbed them of the inherent dignity of being men and women created in the image of God. And, and it became a problem. And it's been a problem in the local church for a few decades. And, and many of us are still, we're grappling with that. Many of us, we had our conscious and consciousness informed by that type of rhetoric, that type of thinking, that type of theology. And the point is this, that when you misunderstand sin, because that was usually the thrust of the message, when you misunderstand sin, you eventually mistreat sinners. And this bothered Jesus. And Jesus showed up and the reason that he took issue with the religious establishment, he saw them mistreating sinners. And he called them out for it. Jesus showed up, and, and this is really important, there's a lot of background to get us to where we wanna land the plane next week. When Jesus showed up in his religious context in the first century, People operated through the lens of labels, categories, and classifications. That's just how they operated with the world around them. They made sense of the world around them through labels, categories, and classifications of people. Now, primarily, now just follow me for just a minute because this is important, and you'll be glad that you paid attention when we get to the end of this. In his context, Jesus found that people basically had two major categories. There was the Jewish category and the Gentile category. Now, if you were Jewish, you were in. But if you were Gentile, guess what? You were out. If you were Jewish, you were the people of God. But if you were Gentile, which simply means not Jewish, you were not the people of God. The Jewish people were chosen by God. The Gentiles were not chosen by God. The Jewish people were beloved. They were the apple of God's eye. The Gentile world, they were not. God had a covenant with the Jewish people. He did not have a covenant with the Gentile people. And so th this is how they thought about it. And so if you were a Jew, you did not intermingle with a Gentile. That's just not what you did. A Gentile was not your best friend. You did not spend your time with Gentiles because you operated through this major category, this label system of Jews are in, Gentiles are out. Now, put the Gentiles aside for just a moment. Underneath the classification of Jewish, there was also subcategories, specifically men, women, and children. Ladies, you should be here next week because what Jesus said about women and men together, I'm telling you, it changed the world. And, and you should be grateful to God that Jesus showed up on the pages of history because of what Jesus did for women. Nobody's ever done for women what Jesus did for women. Underneath the Jewish category, there was men, women, and children. Men, men, that's what mattered. You know what, men woke up every day, if you were a Jewish man, you woke up and you thank God for two things. First of all, you thank God that you were not a Gentile and you thank God you were not born a woman. 
That was the world that Jesus, that he was born into, that he was raised in, that he did ministry in. Now think about that, ladies. Think about how demeaning, think about how that robs you of humanity and dignity of a, as a person who's created in the image of God. I'm thankful that I wasn't born a woman and I'm thankful I was not born a Gentile. Now, women and children in Jesus' days were property. Women were traded, given away. They were objects to make treaties and, and to join wealth between families and to procure a greater land, you know, estate. I mean, that's just, that, that was women in that culture. Women had no say. Women were not given any credibility. Women were not giving any, giving any status. They were not taught primarily, hardly ever were any of them taught how to read. They were kept illiterate. They were kept powerless. And then you had children. And male children were particularly valuable because they could, they could help out. But you only needed just a few daughters. And if you had too many daughters, you just let nature have those daughters. You would just let them die. So Jesus showed up in a world where there were labels of men, women, and children. And Jesus came in and he stepped into that and he spoke to that. But then underneath all of this, which I think kind of upheld all of this thinking, was the categories of clean and unclean. Clean and unclean. Clean and unclean. You know, it's an Old Testament term. It's a New Testament term. It's a religious term. You know, it's synonymous in different religions, but clean and unclean, clean and unclean. And if you want to read about it, you can read about, read about it in Leviticus 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15. There's some very interesting reading about the laws of clean and unclean, of what made a Jewish person unclean. Now, let me just give you some highlights because this was a big deal. This, this, this shaped how people saw other people. This, this shaped how people thought about sin. So if you worked in certain professions, you were considered unclean. Now you had to provide for your family and you had to put food on the table and you should work. It's virtuous to work. It's noble to work and to make a living. But if you worked in certain professions, you were automatically considered unclean. If you were a shepherd, you were considered unclean. If you were a tax collector, you were considered unclean. And there were other professions which made you unclean. What are you supposed to do? Quit your job? What are you supposed to do? Let your family go hungry? So your very profession could render you unclean. And to be unclean meant that you were unwanted and unwelcomed at the house of God, at the temple. You could not approach God because you were unclean. And you would have to go through some type of ceremony, some type of ritual, some type of washing, some type of sacrifice in order to be made clean again. But if you were unclean, everybody knew you were unwanted and unwelcome to the house of God. If you had a physical defect, like you have control over that, if you had a physical defect, you were deemed unclean by the law. If you had a deformed body part, if you were deformed in any way, you were considered unclean. If you were blind, if you were lame, if you had a crippled hand or a crippled foot, you were considered unclean. If you had a running sore, you were considered unclean. If you had a damaged 
testicle, you were considered unclean. If you were a woman and you were having your period, you were considered unclean. If you were a man who sat in a chair where a woman who had her period had just sat, you were considered unclean. If you had sex, you were considered unclean for a period of time, even though it was with your wife. If you were a male and you ejaculated, you were considered unclean. If you touched a corpse, you were unclean. If someone died in your house while you were in the house, you were considered unclean. This is how the world operated when Jesus showed up. And everybody was looking at everybody else through the lens of, are you clean or are you unclean? Are you clean or are you unclean? I have no idea how they enforced it at the house of God. I mean, it's like, you know, people show up to worship. It's like, a, here's a list of things. Could you, could you fill out this intake form and let us know if you have any of these symptoms, any of this, you know, uh, I mean, this is the way it was. You couldn't, you couldn't approach God and be unclean. You were unwelcome at the place where God was said to have dwelled if you were unclean. People saw you as less than. If they were clean and you were unclean, <laughs> no, 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 no. You're less than. In time, the unclean began to be regarded as the enemy. They were told you're not welcome around us clean people. You're not wanted by us clean people. If you unclean people get with us clean people, us clean people are going to be what? Unclean. Then Jesus showed up. And Jesus paid no attention to any of that. And you know who Jesus made friends with? The unclean, the unwanted, the unwelcomed. That's who Jesus said, I will be your friend because you have no friend. I want to be with you because nobody else wants to be with you. And you know what Jesus did? He made friends with the unclean. Jesus touched lepers, which made him ceremonially unclean per the law. Jesus dined with tax collectors and went to their houses, which made him unclean per the law. Jesus talked to Samaritans, which were regarded as half-breeds. Jesus made them his friend, made him unclean, ceremonial per the law. He seemed to break all the religious protocols. And it seems as though that Jesus saw sin differently. Jesus saw this idea of clean and unclean differently. And Jesus saw sinners differently because of it. Now, Matthew was one of those sinners. And Matthew was unclean, unwelcomed, unwanted. And so he writes about this over and over again. Last week, we looked at one passage. This week, here's what Matthew says about when this came to head, a different time in the life of Jesus. He says, then some Pharisees, some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they came from Jerusalem and asked, they had a question they wanted to ask Jesus. Now, Jesus has been, he's been healing the sick all day. He's been around sick people all day. He's been around unclean people all day. That's, that's what Jesus did. And it drove them crazy because it, how can he stay clean and be around unclean people? How is that possible? And so from their perspective, Jesus is unclean. And, and Jesus, his teaching is invalidated because he's hanging out with unclean people. And so they go 60 miles to have a conversation, 60 miles to confront Jesus. Now, you know you're serious if you're willing to walk 60 miles to have a conversation with somebody. Some of you wouldn't walk 60 miles to see your wife. Some of you wouldn't walk 60 miles to see your husband, or even some of you wouldn't even walk 60 miles to see your children. Maybe once a year, but that's about it. I mean, they walked 60 miles to go confront Jesus about something they disagreed with him about. And here was the question. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Oh! 
Now, this wasn't about hygiene because we all want people who, who's making our food to wash their hands and we all want our children to wash their hands before they eat their food. And this is not about hygiene. This, this was about theology. This was about the Old Testament. This was about interpretation. This was about law. This was about Torah, both the written Torah, the written law of God, and the unwritten, the oral Torah, the oral law of God. And this is what it's about because they said, why do you break the tradition of the elders? Remember, God gave Moses the law but they also believe, the religious establishment also believed that God gave Moses an oral law that he told to Joshua and Joshua told to the elders and the elders told to the prophets and the prophets delivered to the religious establishment, the Pharisees and the scribes and the, Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so that's what's, at, that's what's at stake right now is the tradition of the elders, not the written law, but laws that have been put in place to keep people from breaking the written law. So the rules that keep you from breaking the rules and that's that's what it's about. God had told the priests, you need to wash your hands. Here's when you need to wash your hands, how you need to wash your hands in order to stay ceremonially clean. But they came along, the religious establishment and said, okay, we want to make this application for everybody. Everybody has to wash their hands this particular way. Because if you don't, you will be unclean. So Jesus replied to them and said, well, why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? And again, Jesus, Jesus just ups the stakes. I mean, you know, this idea of G Jesus just being, you know, just kind of just weak and passive. I mean, Jesus had no tolerance for the religious establishment. And for some of you, it bothers you that Jesus had no tolerance for the religious establishment, but he seemed very tolerant of some other people. It bothered them too. Jesus elevates the conversation and says, okay, you wanna talk about your tradition, you wanna talk about the laws of man, let's talk about the law of God. Let's talk about the written law. Let's don't talk about the oral law. Let's talk about the written law. Because you, you are using your interpretation of the law, you're using your man-made laws to justify breaking the actual law of God, the clear word of God. He says, you're allowing your ideas, your opinions, and your interpretation to allow you to sidestep obeying what God has clearly said. And then he goes on to say what he means. He says, for God said, now you say, but God said, and anytime you're saying one thing and God's saying another, that's a bad place to be, but that's where the religious establishment was. He said, honor your father and mother. And anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. Now this, for those of you who may not know, that made the top 10. That's the 10 commandments right there. Honor your father and mother. Jesus quoting out of the Old Testament and says, you remember the 10 commandments. You remember honor your father and mother. And if you don't honor your father and mother, you could be put to death. Now, time out. Aren't you glad we're under a new covenant? <laughs> Some of you wouldn't have made it out of middle school. Some of you definitely wouldn't have made it out of high school. All right? And so he says, you remember that. Right? You remember that law. That's pretty clear. Honor your father and your mother. But here's the thing. What was true of things then is true now. Now, to honor your father and mother when they're healthy, when they're vibrant, is one thing. But to honor your father and mother when they're not healthy and not vibrant and when they can't take care of themselves and when it may put you at a financial disadvantage or where the time that it requires to honor your mother and father is inconvenient for you. Jesus said, because honoring your father and mother at this state of your life with your finances and with your time, because it's become inconvenient and a disadvantage to you, you have made up a law that allows you to break God's law. And here's what he says. He said, but you said, 
You say, God said this, you say this. If anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. He says, you've made a rule that allows you to feel better about breaking God's law so that you don't have to spend your money or you don't have to give your time so you don't have to honor your mom and your dad. You've made up an interpretation of the scripture that makes you feel good about disobeying the scripture. Their interpretation of God's law had allowed them to disregard God's law. Now, who would do such a thing? All of us. Let me tell you. Let me tell you the thing about the scripture. You can find any verse you want to justify anything you want. You can. I bet if you're smart enough, you can find more than one. I bet you can find a credible interpretation to support just about any premise that you want to make. Guarantee it. You can find a reason to believe what you want to believe. You can find a reason to behave the way you want to behave. I can, you can, we can. And that's dangerous. But Jesus, as we're going to talk about next week, he came along and he took away the loophole. He took away the sidestep. And he made it difficult to sidestep the clear word of God. And so I guarantee you there's parts of your life and parts of my life where we have a verse or we have some verses or we'll say, well, I know that's what it says, but here's what I think it means. Yeah, but that's what it says. Well, that's not what I think it means. Well, great. But we all have that. We all do that. That's religion. That's being religious. We can find a verse, we can find a theology, we can find a story that justifies what we want to do. They had a theology that allowed them to dishonor and unlove people. And you know what? Many of us grew up being taught a theology that allowed us to dishonor and unlove people. Some of us have carried into adulthood from our childhood a theology that allows us to dishonor and unlove people. Not all people, but just, just a sliver just a few, just one, just two. And Jesus, the reason that he rubbed people the wrong way, he would say, listen, if your theology, if your theology gets in the way of mercy, you got bad theology. If your convictions about what's true or what's right or what's wrong gets in the way of compassion, you need to re-examine your convictions. If truth and your stand for truth and your voice for the truth Hey, if it gets in the way of grace, you have wrongly divided the words of truth. And just, just for free and for extra, if your politics get in the way and cause you to dishonor a group of people and unlove a certain group of people, you need to find a different party. And just for what it's worth, I'm your pastor and you can let me go, but you'll be wrong and I'll still be right. It's getting harder and harder to find anybody to align with politically that doesn't have somebody within our culture that they are dishonoring and unloving. 
But Jesus stepped in and said, I'm not offering you politics. I'm not offering you a political platform. I'm not offering you a party line. I'm not offering you rhetoric. I'm not offering you a ballot box. I'm offering you a belief system that God desires. And when you live out this belief system based on the truth that God has given us in his word, it can change you. It can change those around you. And it can change the world. And so, whatever it is, the standing that's causing, that's allowing you to think, oh, I, I can talk about them, I can dishonor them, I, I can speak as though they're not even human, I can rob them of dignity, I, I can label, I can classify. Listen, religion allows us to do those things and feel good about ourselves. Listen, I grew up in Bell County, Kentucky. I'm an Appalachian, born, bred, raised. This is my story, and, and, and I'm thankful for my story. I'm grateful for my story, but listen, I'm telling you, there's some things that exist in Appalachia that is exactly what Jesus talked about. Theology that allows us to dishonor and unlove. Listen, I, I know of a church, I know this for a fact. Right before the church started, about 10.50, church started at 11 o'clock, there, there was a black gentleman that walked in 10 minutes before the service started, set back about three rows from the back. Now, there were no greeters. There was no guest services. There was nobody walked up, shook a hand, said, we're so glad you're here. You know why? Because nobody was glad he was there. The white people in that church who said, we love God and we love people, all people, in the 10 minutes before church, they called an emergency deacons meeting. And the deacons got together to discuss, how are we gonna handle this situation? What are we gonna do? Some, some, something's going on. What are we going to do, boys? What are we going to do? <laughs> and so they, they elected a couple of guys to go search out the agenda of this man. Sir, you know you're at the church? Yeah, yeah. Looking forward to it. Uh, where are you from? And they started asking questions. Well, then they, they decided that to be safe, they would sit behind him just to make sure. And then you know what? They commenced to sing in their songs about loving Jesus, loving his word, praying, shaking hands, and crying and feeling good about themselves. <laughs> All the while, their racist hearts were an offense to God. Whew. It's quiet at 10, just like it was earlier. That's the way it works. But we like to talk about certain things, but all through Appalachia, there's some things we don't talk about. We can talk about a lot of our country churches up and down the mountain chain. There's a lot of men in church that can work, don't work. They draw a check, they steal. We ain't gonna talk about that. Lord Jesus. <laughs> Let's don't get carried away. Come on now. But now, half of them are deacons. We can't say that. What are we going to do? We got to talk about somebody else. Let's talk. Dear God, we got to talk about somebody that's not there because I got to make a check. I'm a preacher. I got to work. I got to do something. I can't talk about that. Well, you'll leave and go somewhere else. That's the way it works. That's the way it has worked. We had a couple at NBC show up in our church. Through a 
threw a fit on guest services and said, we would have never bought a ticket if we knew we had to sit over here by these inmates. Yet they had showed up to celebrate the incarnation of our Savior. <laughs> who when sinners could not get to him, he came to them. And the Savior that said, hey, let me tell you, if you know whether you're a sheep or a goat, remember that whole thing about being in prison? You came to see me? We all can have a theology that allows us to praise and to worship and walk out and feel good about ourselves. And here's what Jesus said about it. You hypocrites. Let's all just say that out loud together on three. One, two, three. You hypocrites. See, you're thinking he's talking to somebody else, but he's talking to you. And he's talking to me. Because we've all got this. He says, you play acting. You pray, you give, you fast, you worship, you sing. But you dishonor some people. You're unloving some people. And he said, Isaiah was right when he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts, their hearts are far from me. I don't have time to tell you everything that I wanted to tell you this morning, but I think I've told you perhaps just what I need to tell you this morning. What I needed to hear this morning myself. Jesus said, sin is not something you catch. It's not something that invades you. It's not something that contaminates you. It's not something that gets on you. Jesus would teach that day that sin is in us. And he would say, it's not food that makes you unclean. It's not an it, it's not a they that makes you unclean. It is your heart that makes you unclean. And Jesus would say, from out of the heart, from out of the heart come things like adultery and sexual immorality and idolatry and lying and stealing. See, we love to talk about the expressions of sin. Amen. <laughs> Holy Ghost got all over him. <laughs> I really don't know where to go from there. Some of you are so thankful God gave you that moment. You were such under conviction in that moment, you were squirming. But Jesus said, listen, we can talk about the expressions of sin all day long. But let's talk about the heart because your expression of sin, your struggle, your failure, your habit may be different than someone else's, but it's all coming from the same sinful heart. And here's what we learn from Jesus. Jesus, Jesus came to close the distance and go the distance to bring those far from God back to God. The law the law forbid the unclean to come near God. But here's the gospel. When the unclean were not permitted to come to him, 
in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born under the law to redeem those that were under the law, that the clean, the perfect, the sinless son of God stepped towards us, the unclean. He closed the distance and then he went the distance to the cross and he that had been a perfect law keeper died for all of us who had been law breakers. And he that knew no sin became sin for us so that we could be right with God. Even in the Old Testament, the prophet said, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. I will make a new covenant with my people and I will put in them a new heart and a new spirit. And I will not write my law on tables of stone, but I will write it on their hearts. And here's the thing, God can change a heart before he ever changes a life. So you can be forgiven and we can be forgiven, but working it out, ironing it out, getting the wrinkles out may take some of us longer than others. So let's, let's cut each other some slack. Let's give each other some grace. Let's understand that Jesus has called us to the forgiveness of our sins. And he's also called us to walk away from our sins. And some will walk faster than others. But in the end, we're all laid low at the cross. All short of the glory of God. Because he closed the distance. And he went the distance. He looked at sinners like you and me and said, no one. No one is siding with them and nobody's standing up for them. So Father, send me. Send me. I'll do more than side with and stand for. I'm gonna die for them. That's the good news that Jesus brings to the world. Father, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. Holy Spirit, only you can take the words of our Savior and let it land where it needs to land. Let us hear what we need to hear. Let us respond how we need to respond. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. If you're here and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, that's what you need to do. You need a new heart. You need his spirit inside of you. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you need to search your heart and see if there's anybody you're dishonoring and unloving and feeling okay about it. Father, let us sit here in this moment. Speak to us in Jesus' name.